the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. On today's installment of What Could Go Right, I am speaking with Dambisa Moyo, who I've been friendly with for many years. She is an extraordinary woman who has had an extraordinary career as a global economist and an author. She's written uh, a number of books, including Dead Aid, about the challenges and perils of Western aid programs in Africa. She's also written a book called Winner Take All about the success of the Chinese model, at least through the early 2010s. And she is finishing up her next book called The Edge of Chaos, which will be out early in 2018. She was educated in the UK. She also has a uh, degree from Harvard. She has worked at Goldman Sachs, at McKinsey, and she is currently on the board of Barclays, Barrick Gold, Chevron Energy, and Seagate Technologies. So she is a unique voice, a writer, someone who's been involved intimately with the ups and many times downs of global corporations. And she's also spoken widely, including a much-followed TED Talk and commented often in various publications on what's going on in our global economic system. And while Dembisa definitely has a more uh, cautious, if not pessimistic view of what's going on in the global economy, she is ever provocative and ever illuminating. So it's my pleasure to have her for a conversation. So, Dambisa, you have been looking at inequality, you've been looking at rising levels of debt, you've been looking at issues around the world that affect global corporations. Can you rank them? Are there a series of issues you think are the most pressing versus a series of issues that are pressing but maybe not as immediately? Thank you for hosting me. I'm delighted to participate. Um, I think the way I would frame the answer to your question is to start off with what I would consider to be the fundamental uh, sort of foundational changes 
in the global economy. Um, and the way I would um, couch that is in two ways. First of all, there, has, there is, and we're undergoing, but there has already been a significant shift in the role of uh, non-state actors. Um, and by that, I don't just mean ISIS or al-Qaeda. I'm talking about philanthropists and um, non-governmental agencies in terms of their influence from the perspective of public policy and the delivery of public goods. Um, but the second point, uh, which I think is a very fundamental shift, is the impotence around um, particularly economic tools, but also political tools that we used in the 20th century to solve some of the economic challenges that we're dealing with today that have essentially, as I mentioned a moment ago, become impotent and are no longer working to solve um, both the economic and the political environment in which we find ourselves. In terms of the economics, I'm talking about things like the interest rate regime to monetary policy, as well as fiscal policy. Um, clearly, uh, we're in a, an era now of incredibly and histor- you know, historically low interest rates and uh, a world of QE. Um, and this is uh, incredibly artificial in terms of trying to resolve some of the challenges post um, the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and then in the terms of diplomacy, and I've alluded to this already, um, a lot of the, uh, the, the, the sort of framing, the political framing, the rise of the importance of democracy, um, the global infrastructure and engagement has also come under challenge in recent times. So if, uh, the way I would characterize the fundamental shifts that we're uh, encountering right now is really through the lens of these two massive shifts. And then we can talk some more about the array of consequences, whether it's debt, um, technological uh, automation, and what that might mean for job, a jobless underclass, demographic shifts, and natural resource scarcity, etc. Um, but that's how I would uh, initially frame the, the question. So it's funny, you know, one thing I've been asking lots of people, and I may have asked you at another time, is at a purely like macro structural level, if things are so bad, why aren't they worse? And and the question is, again, that macro stability level as opposed to, you know, maybe there are 60 million Americans and not inconsiderable large chunk who are manifestly, you know, being screwed by the contemporary economy or not doing well. I'm just saying at a, at a macro stability level, you know, you haven't found there are not governments crumbling. At least they're not governments crumbling because of economics, right? Syria's civil war is, is not really an economic thing. Venezuela was mismanaged. North Korea has been North Korea through various economic cycles, right? So kind of in spite of all that, why why haven't things – why are things feeling so bad structurally and yet relatively benign when you look at it? So it's it's a great question, um, and you know I think this is a classic thing that frustrates economists because we're very good at predicting doom and gloom, and then it sort of it doesn't turn up as quickly as we expect. And I'm reminded of a, a quote or a clip from uh, Rudiger Dornbusch, who was a, uh, a very eminent professor um, of economics at MIT when I was uh, at Harvard, and he always used to say the thing about. Uh, about crises is that they always emerge much later than you expect, um, but they also are much more catastrophic than you um, than anyone anticipates. And I think just to, to be more succinct with you know in answering your question, I would say that we are in a world where there we see a lot of the problems, but we are in a band-aid world. By that I mean a lot of the um, QE, a lot of the um, 
the, the uh, low interest rate environment have have basically put a band-aid on what I think is uh, a lot of festering problems, which are emerging, but perhaps more, much more slowly than we would expect. So um, if you look around the world today, freedom numbers from Freedom House, for example, there is a disintegration in political freedom in both developed and developing countries. If you look at the economic environment, it is absolutely the case that participation rates even in the United States, have declined and not, never recovered post the uh, financial crisis. Um, you know, we, we tend to focus on the unemployment rate, but as you know, um, the underemployment rate continues to be one that's quite disturbing. Concerns around income inequality and the debt levels um, in the United States are, you know, things that are bubbling under the... And so I certainly don't fear, I mean, I, I should say my, for myself, um, I'm pretty queasy about where we are, um, uh, not just in the United States, but, but globally, um, on, you know, across a whole range of metrics and, and, uh, and lenses. And so, you know, yes, should we feel a bit comforted that uh, it hasn't blown up completely? Um, um, you know, I think there are people who gain that comfort. But from my perspective, I do worry that, uh, that this is, is not sustainable longer term. Um, what the trigger might be for this sort of catastrophic scenario, um, I can't tell you. Um, but I, what I can tell you is if you just look at the debt, um, both not just, not just at an aggregate level, but government debt, um, household debt, you know, credit card debt, student loans, auto loans, all of these factors are, um, you know, are, are above a trillion dollars in the United States. Um, and, you know, clearly there's something very fundamental that has occurred um, in the political as well as in the economic realm that um, I think will only get worse without some drastic uh, response. The title of this podcast is What Could Go Right? And it's a way of saying, let's also look at what could go well as opposed to badly. And part of what I'm trying to do is also engage the conversation, which is I'm not really interested in simply echoing that theme. So one of the reasons to have this conversation with you is you've thought a lot about this and you have a strong brief for why we ought to be concerned. And so my, you know, my pushback to that is, um, you know, absolute debt levels make a lot of difference only if interest rates in fact, go higher. Now, you could say, well, they'll go higher because central banks have been keeping them artificially low. You could also say they've been kept artificially, they've been kept uh, organically low by just the massive deflationary effects of technology. Or, you know, if you think about an area you know much better uh, than I do, right? Sub Saharan Africa, which is a, it's not really a place, it's just a you know, geographic designation. But there's certainly a lot of dynamic income improvement, you know, with huge pockets of complete chaos and dysfunction. So, you know, I wonder if if part of the issue of, of anticipating a crisis is while the Dornbutt quote is entirely correct, it, it's certainly been true that in a world of concern, anticipating a massive crisis and predicting one has a certain convincingness, particularly if you don't give a date. Because you, you can always say, well, just wait. And it's hard. You can't pre that can't be proven wrong. It's a non-falsifiable. So I just wonder what you'd say about the, you know, the, let's take just take the debt and stuff you've looked a lot at. Uh, maybe interest rates are low because they ought to be low. You know, that there's a lot of emerging wealth. There's technology creating deflation. And so even if you took central banks out of the equation, you'd still have low interest rates. And therefore, that can be supportive of higher levels of debt. Yeah. 
Yes, but um, first of all, we know that the rate path is in the United States for sure is on the way up. Um, we've already had a rate hike. Everyone's talking about another rate rate hike. The issue is really about where what's happened to inflation. In the UK, there is inflation. There's already talk about raising rates there. Um, and they've already been, you know, quite, I would say, ahead of the curve in terms of getting back to what they would perceive to be an, a correct equilibrium for rates, which is at a higher level than where they are today. Um, I think it's probably not that valuable to speculate on rates and et cetera. I mean, I think maybe it's important to take a step back and think and answer your question, what could go right? And I don't, I'm not a, a pessimist by nature, uh, believe it or not. Um, but uh, I, I do think that my concerns are not really about these, the manifestation of, you know, debt and demographics. I think those are just simply what I just said, manifestations of a problem. I'm more concerned about the fundamental structural shift around um, the failure of policy to be effective, the policies that we've relied on over the past 50 years um, to be in, in being ineffective, and uh, you know, both in terms of uh, economic policy, but also in terms of uh, in terms of uh, diplomatic sort of engagement and uh, and you know how the political global political regime uh, works itself. And so, in that regard, um, I wouldn't be euphoric about what's going on in a place like a place like Africa. I mean, Africa will have 50 percent of the world's population, or about 40 percent of the world's population by 2100. Um, that sounds great, but you know, in a world where people are not getting jobs, I think we need to think about what that might imply for immigration, um, what it might mean for uh, for lower growth environment, for a world in which people are not really um, seeing improvements in living standards that they are expecting. And I don't think we have an answer for that. And when I say me, I, me, I mean uh, both uh, economists as well as public policy people. So that's where my skepticism and sort of a reluctance to be sort of euphoric comes from. Do you feel like living standard expectations, because that's one of the great challenges of how do we perceive these economic systems performing? Because there's always an element now. So once you've taken care of food, clothing, and shelter, and to some degree physical safety or transportation, you know, certain of life's essentials, you're you're somewhat left with okay what's what's an economic system supposed to do and then you get into this whole question of what do people expect from it and clearly you know at each stage where something is achieved human beings at least to this juncture in time tend to expect more right yes i mean maybe scandinavian countries actually are generally or genuinely static like we have enough we've we've we want to maintain we don't need to augment but most societies tend to get to the point that they had aspired to be at or not and then reset the bar higher, right? Most countries don't reset the bar lower. So I wonder, like, you know, what I – mean, you, you know a lot about the UK. You, you serve on a board there. You live there, certainly in a Brexit world. Like, what, what exactly is a country like England supposed to – or the UK? I know they're different. <laughs> what are they supposed to expect, Right. 60 million people, high levels of affluence, no real population growth. What's, like, what's the system supposed to achieve for that world? Well, I think that um, Brexit told us a lot about what the average citizen in the UK um, is, expects. 
um, I think that the uh, the public policy and establishment has always assumed that if people's wages were going up, if people's um, you know ability to deliver a suite of goods, education and healthcare and public goods to their citizens, it would all be fine. In the UK today, um, the average household has approximately 60% of its household budget is, is subsidized by the government. Everything from transportation, education, health care, um, food, uh, you know, and so you would argue uh, that that actually sounds like a pretty good, um, you know, winning formula. But then there's the question of, you know, and I think it, it feeds into a, a classic question that's always posed in the United States. Are the next generation going to have a better life than this generation? And I think that's really what people are upset about. Um, the average citizen is saying, wait a second, yeah, okay, my life's not that bad. I have a McMansion or I'm able to go on holiday twice a year. But, but wait a second, this is coming at an inordinate cost with significant intergenerational trade-offs that we are not um, dealing with. Um, it's, and, and I do think a lot of the system that we're dealing with right now or the consequences of this, in, you know, this system are really about the, um, the short-termism that we have in government. You know, public policymakers are, are, of course, going to turn around and say, what are you complaining about? Things aren't that bad. You have a job now. Unemployment rate is down. Isn't that fantastic where the stock market is trading? But actually, if you strip away this, this sort of short-term myopic um, perspective and think about the long-term, um, think about job prospects in a world where technology is dominating, think about a world where income inequality is widening, think about a world where the prospects um, are, are seem to be shrinking for the average um, person. I, and, you know, in, in the UK, you asked about the UK, they have you know over a million meets, which they which is which are called um, no education, employment, or training. Uh, over a million of these young people between the ages of 18 and 24. I mean, prospects are deteriorating, and people are feeling incredibly frustrated about that. So I do think that what you're talking about, what you're getting at, really, is this is this tension between short term perspective of politicians um, who love to portray a particularly um, interesting perspective um, and, and at the same time can't, you know, can't deliver a longer term story. That's but that longer term story, I mean, it's a really crucial point because the question for a lot of these societies, particularly the more developed and, and aggregate affluent ones is like what's an acceptable portion of a populace that's struggling? You know, is it is it 15 percent? I mean, like, how do you – one of the fascinating things about the United States, for instance, is the 1950s are widely looked back through rose-tinted glasses as this wonderful time of, you know, income parity or more parity than today where you could you know, get an education and find a job and things would be good and you could support – a male could support the family on, on one income and, you know, the wife could stay at home and raise the children and – and we, we nostalgize that. And then people turned around in the 1960s and went, oh, my God, you know, there are 10, 15 million at the time in 1965 African-Americans in abject poverty. There are another 20 million whites in the South rural who you know, barely had electricity after World War II. And there's all this poverty, right? Like, like 
Yes, but it's about social mobility. People believed in the American dream. They believed if they worked hard, their life, or certainly the life of their children, would be better than theirs. That was completely what this is about. And if I may, I'm sorry to butt in, but I think picking up on your question of what is the acceptable level of poverty, I think that all these systems, but most importantly the political system of democracy, is founded on there being a middle class that not only sees progression in terms of real wage progression, which we've seen deteriorate over several decades in the United States, but also believes that if they work hard, they are going to see an improvement in their living standards. And once, if you see cracks in that, this... As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is when I think not just the economic environment becomes very challenging, but I think also the the viability of the democratic system also becomes particularly challenged. So and how do we measure that, though? How do we measure the increase in living standards? Because wages have been the primary way people gauge whether their lives are getting better, more money. But if things are getting cheaper, meaning is, are wages really the only way to measure that? No. I mean, I think one of the things that I've proposed in my own work is that people should look at time. Um, and, and I think it, it, it would require an enormous shift in the, in the way people frame things. But think about the fact that um, if, you, if somehow we could convince people that actually they are doing better because they, have, they can spend less time on, I don't know, having their apartment cleaned or, uh, you know, taking the kids to school. Those would, to me, that's really a, a metric of progression. And actually, in that lens, I would say you could argue that things are better. You know, people can, can ostensibly choose in many regions of the world to work less hours and, and actually have a much more, uh, you know, expansive uh, consumer basket. I can, you know, buy a loaf of bread. And, you know, the McDonald's index, which The Economist publishes, is a very good, uh, a good example of this. So, you know, it's, it's a time frame as opposed to a money frame. But the bottom line is that we're in a capitalist society. And, it's, you know, who is going to bail that cat? Who's going to stand 
up and say, guys, I think we're looking at the wrong metric. We've tried happiness indices. We've tried all these other living standard indices. But ultimately, you know, the public policy and establishment still look at GDP. They look at inflation. They look at wages. And we get that information on a quarterly basis. Yeah. And, you, I mean, we, you and I have talked about this over the years, that there's you know, real challenges about what that measures, how it measures, what it measures. Exactly. Is it capturing what we want to capture, and then much more problematic, it becomes part of political incentives and then social discussion. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And that's where we are now. That's, I mean, in my mind, that's, that's where the schism is between, uh, you know, what, what the politicians want us to focus on and, and reality. So why is inequality such a big deal? I mean, we, we, we talk about it with a common acceptance of it being a real problem, but why is it a problem? Meaning... Why does it matter if someone has a lot, even obscenely a lot, versus someone else who has less? Yeah, I mean, I think, so this is a great question. Um, I think it only matters in as much as people don't believe that the system is fair. If they feel, and this is the problem with the whole democratic agenda, because, uh, you know, as much as I love democracy and I'm a, I'm a Democrat, you know, a, a support of democracy uh, myself, the bottom line is that we've all been convinced that this is the best system for us to um, and, and you know, to, to have a path towards improved living standards. And, you know, as I, whether you look at it through time or through uh, wages, this is the path. In a world where people feel that actually the middle class is not progressing and that somehow there is an elite class, 1% or whatever you want to call it, who is benefiting from the status quo, you then end up with a situation where people no longer believe in social mobility. And if people don't believe in social mobility and they think that the system is somehow rigged into, in favor of certain people at, or a small coterie of the, of the citizen, citizenry and not you know, the average guy, that, I think, is when you start to see people concerned about income inequality. I mean, frankly, and, and I think the U.S. experiment is particularly interesting because, again, this is the country that has you know, coined this, the whole idea of the American dream. Everybody can make it. Um, but if people believe they no, they no longer believe they can make it and somehow there's an embedded um, aspect in the system which discriminates based on, take your pick, gender, race, sexuality, uh, immigrant status, um, that immediately starts to erode at the belief in social mobility and ultimately I think income inequality becomes a problem. So people then essentially don't believe that they can ever really break out of a, a certain level of poverty. Income inequality in and of itself is not the issue as much as a perception of the fairness of the system and your ability to navigate it. Absolutely. That's my, my, that is my, my read. And, and look at, and you just, you said in the 1950s, I mean, really 50s, 60s, even 70s, the numbers in the United States weren't so great. Um, but people believed that they could, if they worked hard, worked two jobs, worked all hours that God gave, um, they could too you know, have the house, have the car, you know, you know we essentially live a life um, where they're willing to, to in, you know, improve their living standards. And that's just I mean, it's an interesting, you know, a broader question of uh, were, were we happier with certain illusions that we all believed and therefore, you know, we can look back at that as a better time or are we better off with fewer of those illusions, more uncertainty, but much more cultural angst? Well, I mean, I think it depends on how far, how bad a situation can go. Uh, and it might, it, you know, if people, if people stop believing. So um, put another way, if this 
if we could jump from this equilibrium, um, you know, an equilibrium where people believed in social mobility and capitalism was great and democracy is fantastic, to an equilibrium where people are more skeptical about um, capitalism, you know, more concerned about income inequality, et cetera, maybe there wouldn't, maybe, I, I mean, like, I'm, this is just really hazarding a guess, maybe there wouldn't be an issue because there are many countries that you've talked about, Scandinavia, but there are many other countries which have fewer, fewer freedoms, but people are living ostensibly, you know, good lives on a per capita income level. Um, Hungary is right. an example. Um, but if, and if you could jump from one equilibrium to another, maybe it wouldn't be a problem. The problem is how do you move from one equilibrium to another equilibrium and you know does that transition uh, create a, such a massive schism that society is under siege and you have uh, you know breakdown in in rule of law you have a breakdown in uh, in in the way that the society operates and and I think that's the question yeah and that's more of a existential societal identification question than it is an economic one I mean it's funny it's not just a capitalist question right because China which you've also studied and written about which had a, at least in theory, a non-capitalist view until the 1990s, um, but had a strong ethos of equality and everybody, you know, all citizens equal. You know, they've had their own struggle with a perception of inequality, which in that case, I guess, plays out more as a struggle against corruption, right? Where people don't feel the system is going to benefit them. I mean, do you see China weathering these storms better, worse, differently? Well, if we take the, let's just take the, the issue of income inequality, which I think is a, is a brilliant metric um, through which to consider some of the questions that you've just thrown out. Um, so China, completely different from the United States. The United States is the largest economy in the world in GDP terms. It's a country that's relied on democracy and has relied on, uh, relied on capitalism as an economic ethos. Um, number two, largest economy, China. This is a completely different political structure. It's a state capitalist society and has, and has deprioritized democracy. But these two economies, completely different economies, one, you know, number one and number two in the world, um, have the same Gini coefficient, which is the measure of income inequality. And I think what's even more perverse is that if you look over the last 10 years, um, China's GDP has actually, uh, excuse me, China's uh, income inequality has actually improved, and the income inequality of the United States has actually worsened. And I think that, to me, that's a very, uh, it's a great narrative for China's uh, public policymakers. It's a, it's a great one-liner about the uh, limitations of democracy and of capitalism. Um, whether over the long term China can continue to sustain these type of numbers and really come down quite considerably in terms of growth, I mean, it's yet, yet to be seen. But I do think it, 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 if nothing else, it does force all of us, particularly people like myself who believe in capitalism and who believe in democracy, to take a step back and to think about what might be the, the sort of uh, side effects or the, uh, the artifacts of the uh, political system and economic system that we, we know and love. China definitely represents its own uh, challenge to our belief in the absolute supremacy of this capitalism fused with democracy, fused with liberalism, right? That this would be this virtuous triad that w would provide incomparable advantages to its citizens above and beyond any other system, none of which you could really say apply to China. 
Well, yeah, and I mean, there's also questions about how, whether or not it can be replicated. I mean, it's the same question we have with Scandinavia, but the truth of the matter is that, you know, in many instances, these are very unique circumstances. I mean, Scandinavia, most countries have relatively small population. In China's case, you've got a massive role of government there, that, and it hasn't really been tested over a century. I mean, it certainly hasn't, and they've only been um, with this frame for a, a few decades. Um, so I, I think it, this is another challenge, you know, going back to what I originally started off talking about with the challenge to our beliefs um, about non-state actors and about the uh, economic and policy sort of uh, frames that we rely on. I think that these are questions that are now gaping and, and you know, are out there for us to challenge and, and really our fidelity to democracy and capitalism are under threat and we do need to come up with systems and policies that can not only, you know, sound like a great soundbite in the short term, but long term weather a lot of the challenges that we're experiencing today. So your own life story is, is essentially a testament to either the success of or the potentials of globalization, spreading wealth, increased education, right? Zambian heritage, incredible education in Europe, I mean, in the UK, in the United States. I feel like now that we can't, now with Brexit, we have to qualify that the UK may or may not be part of Europe. Um, and then, you know, a career in some of the uh, best companies in the world and then on boards. Do you feel like your path has now become harder or easier? Meaning if you were born today, would your path continue to be a viable one or is it becoming less viable? Uh, personally, I think it's becoming much more difficult, much more challenging. Um, I, you know, I don't have children, but I think I often think of you know, my, my nephews and my niece um, and my friends who have ch- got children, and I think, okay, so what subjects can you really pick today, um, you know, as a young teenager, preteen, that would actually, you can guarantee has some validity um, in 20 years' time? Um, back in my day, you know, having math skills, having science skills, uh, some, you know, semblance of, uh, of writing skills actually, um, you know, served you in good stead. Um, today, not only is it global competition, but I think it's just much more challenging to predict way, the way the world will work. And more than that, you know, just because everyone says, oh, we just, you know, make sure that you know how to code, doesn't necessarily mean that you have a child or you're actually a person who's good at that. Um, and I think a lot of the skill sets, um, you know, that in, in liberal arts, I mean, that we were witnessing in here. And now, um, you know, we're seeing a, a, a diminution in a lot of those types of jobs. Um, they're being replaced by automation. You might say rightly that, well, this isn't this just fantastic. It means that we can spend our time doing other things because it'll be so cheap for us and we won't have to work crazy hours. Um, I mean, I know that argument, but I think that, uh, again, alluding to something I said earlier, maybe getting maybe that equilibrium is completely viable, but the problem is how do you get there? What is the transition to that equilibrium? And my concern um, today is that I think it's, um, it's becoming much more difficult, and I, and I worry a lot about um, the way in which the public policymakers think about this. I think that this disconnect between their short-term agenda of being re-elected every two years as an election in the United States, every four years for the presidency, but that um, split between what policymakers actually drives them and the long-term challenges that we're talking about, uh, I think is particularly problematic for resolving um, really what, what prospects there are for, for young people today.
being in the middle of an inflection point is probably the worst case scenario for one as an individual or as a society because whatever had worked until that point ceases to and whatever will work from that point isn't yet apparent. Exactly. And I think there's another element to this and it goes back to the role of the public policymaker. I grew up in Africa at a time where my, my early formative years were really at a time when the government was at the center. Um, the ideas of mixed economies or even communist economies was absolutely dominant. This is the post-colonial period. Um, by the time I got to university, all we heard about was a market economy, was about um, glasnost and perestroika, the need for the Washington consensus, the, that gov- small government was, was most uh, the ideal thing, and that the private sector would do all this job creation, et cetera, et cetera. But what I thought was very well done by our government at that time was to basically go around and sell this story as being a very, very difficult um, jump to occur. So nobody went around and said, oh, my God, it's going to be only fantastic. They said, listen, guess what? Over 50 percent of people in the formal economy, in the formal employment in this country are working for the government. We are about to to shut down, essentially shut down many divisions of the government. A lot of people will be out of work. Please support your family members. It's going to be better in the long term, but the transition is going to be bloody hard. And I think that that um, as it was a hard pill to swallow, but at least somebody was willing to tell the truth. And things were very difficult. Um, and we know people were incredibly impatient. We then started to hear, uh, you know, a, what I call a snapback in the West. I mean, what the World Bank started talking about capitalism with a human face, etc., because there was so much of a, uh, there were so many people that were out of work. There's a lot of poverty, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of diminution or reduction in living standards because of that transition. But, you know, Nevertheless, I think on the whole, we can say now, being on the other side, that countries did benefit from making those very hard choices into the global, uh, globalized economy. I just think in places like the United States, um, for the reasons I've already articulated, people are just not that honest about what needs to happen um, and what that transition might look like. And it's, I think it's very much hitched to the democratic process, um, which I know and love, but I do think, you know, could stand to have a few more uh, improvements, I think, and upgrades, um, which, uh, you know, we'll, we'll obviously discuss at some other point, I hope. What you just said reminded me uh, of the, the book and the movie Primary Colors, which came out in the 90s. And, and in the movie in particular, John Travolta, who plays the, the Clinton character, shows up at a, at a closing plant and looks at the workers and begins his speech saying, I just want you to know uh, these jobs are never coming back. But And then he goes on to say, this is what our responsibilities as a government and as a society is to those workers who who are out of work or who are no longer having jobs. And the reason why it's held up as such a, you know, a fantasy is he's com- makes no promises about the jobs returning, but he does make a strong promise about what we can do to ease and, and buffer that transition. That's not something we hear a whole lot from uh, a political class in the United States. By the way, it's no surprise that that was exactly a fictional, a fictional fantasy thing because, yeah, because the bottom line is the 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 choices and the narrative that 
public policy makers make, particularly in the United States or in democracy in general, are very rational. These guys aren't dumb. They just they want to be reelected. A successful politician is a politician who's in office. And therefore, they are in the business of, of talking about the positive, um, real prospects without really discussing these transitional points, which are going to be very, very difficult. Um, and behind closed doors, I do believe people say, listen, our participation rate is down. People are working multiple jobs and their incomes, real wages have declined. They've got, they're burdened with debts. Their kids don't know what they're going to do. You know, it's, there's a whole array of real challenges. And I think that, um, you know, I, I, I actually have a lot of faith in the American people and I have a lot of faith in global citizens in general that if they're told a hard story, you know, but it's packaged in a way, a constructive way, I think that they would be willing to swallow a, a bitter pill. But I, I think this idea of just pretending that nothing bad is going on, I think, is, all, is not really uh, in service for long-term um, prospects. Well, on that provocative and semi-uplifting uh, note, uh, I want to thank you for joining the conversation. And then when your book is out, The Edge of Chaos, next year, we can resume the conversation. I look forward to it. I will be coming to you with uh, 10 proposals to reform democracy. <laughs> that, at that, time. that would be so good. I look forward to speaking to you. And thank you so much for the opportunity to join you today. Thanks, Dan Take care. Bye-bye.